verses 5 to 16. Last week we started in the book of Jude, which is the second last book in the Bible and is the last in our series called Short Letters. It is a hard-hitting letter that goes after a particular problem in the early church and that was the, the way that Satan attacked the early church two ways. One was through persecution and the other way was infiltrating through false teaching. And so this letter goes after not so much the persecution, Peter and others talk about that, but after the false teachers and those who were influenced by them. So Jude was so concerned about it that even though he intended to write about our glorious salvation, he ended up writing about apostasy. And Jude is exhorting us to contend for the faith, this, this wonderful truth, the wonderful gospel that has been entrust, delivered to us, entrusted to us. And today people ask, why be so concerned with truth and false teaching? Why not simply be more open-minded, consider new ideas as opportunities for growth and understanding that we need for this new age that we live in? Why? Because it's a dangerous virus that affects the body of Christ, his church. Yet over the years, the church has simply found it irresistible to be flirting with these ideas rather than dismiss them out of hand. This has happened for the last 2,000 years. And what we are witnessing today is because is because we have not listened to these countless warnings from the Word of God. And, and we actually, in a way, dismiss them dismiss their understanding as being somewhat primitive because we're much more advanced than they were. And this is where the book of Jude fits in because it is written to primarily to Jewish Christians, Christians who came out of Judaism and it is filled with well-known personalities and incidents that they would have immediately connected with and recognised. That, that's why he, he brings a lot of these examples in the reading that we had. Uh, these include the Exodus in verse 5, uh, Satan's rebel, rebellion, verse 6, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, Moses' death, verse 9, Cain, verse 11, Balaam, verse 11, Korah, verse 11 again, and then Enoch in verses 14 and 15. So these are given as, 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 as strong reminders to these Christians and to us of the necessity of true faith and obedience in the midst of confusing and immoral times. One of the tricky aspects that I have to address here is that this letter uh, in this letter, Jude appears to refer to non-canonical books. What, do, what does that mean, non-canonical books? They, it means that these are books that are outside of 
our scriptures. Um, one is the book of Enoch, and another is called the Assumption of Moses, which most Jews at the time knew about. Now, the fact that he was citing them does not necessarily mean that he endorsed them. Uh, these were books written in the intertestamental period. Again, what does intertestamental mean? It means between the books of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and the Gospel of Matthew, the first in the New Testament. That is that intertestamental period. And uh, so what, what do we do with this? Now, the fact that he was citing them does not necessarily mean that he endorsed the whole of the books themselves. Please understand that. It's like saying, I like the house, but not the suburb that it's in. Right? Have you ever used that expression before? Paul, for example, he, uh, in, when he got up in, in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and he, he preached to these philosophers, he presented the gospel to them very powerfully, he actually used, he made reference to some of their secular authors. That's in Acts 17.28. It's one of them. Why did he do this? Was this reference was, to, was meant to reinforce a point that Paul was making as he preached. The nature of God. Similarly, Jude's allusion to non-canonical sources is to illustrate and reinforce the point that he's making about false teachers. So we're going to look at different exhibits that Jude used in order to teach them and us. The first exhibit A, the unbelieving Israel, verse 5. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. One of the saddest indictments of the nation of Israel is that even when, even though the pagan nations around them recognised what the God of Israel had done for his people by bringing them out of Egypt, by delivering them out of slavery, they themselves did not recognise it. That's uh, Joshua chapter 2, 10 to 11. It tells us that uh, when the spies came and spoke to Rahab, Rahab already knew the, the, the reputation of the Israelites and all the ways that God had delivered them. They knew, they knew this was in Jericho. And yet the Israelites failed to trust and remain true to God and paid the ultimate price. They wandered through the, the wilderness for... 40 years until a whole generation died, except two, whole generation died without ever seeing the promised land. That's what rebellion and sin does. It makes you go around in circles without meaning, without purpose in this life. And for many, I would say even most, they never get to see the next. They never get to see the blessing that God has prepared for those who trust him in the promised land that is heaven. 
The, the reason important point that Jude makes here in verse nine, that in verse five, sorry, that you sort of blink and you miss it, and and it comes as you look at the different translations, uh, the different Bible versions. For example, some translations, uh, the NIV and the King James version, use the word or use the phrase "the Lord" here in verse five, "the Lord." Others the ESV and the NET, they follow the older manuscripts that specify that Jesus, actually instead of saying the Lord, they actually say Jesus. Jesus is the one who judged them for their sins. This is a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is the Jesus before Matthew, before the Gospels, before the New Testament. It actually says this, which is quite significant. That was actually Jesus, the one who judged Israel for their sins. But I thought Jesus did not turn up until, no, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. The Lamb of God. But I thought Jesus was friendly, meek and mild. Don't forget, Jesus is also a roaring lion. Okay? Yes, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, but he's also the Lion of Judah, who has judged sin in the past, and the very one, the very means by which God, the Godhead, used through him to carry out judgment. No wonder. Jude, as he contemplates this, as we spoke about last week, he did not even want to refer to himself as, the, as Jesus' half-brother or as Jesus' little brother, but simply refers to him as his doulos, his servant, his slave, something that he failed to recognise when he grew up with Jesus. But certainly submits to him after the resurrection. That is a wonderful example. As Lord Jesus is willing to extend mercy until that day comes, but will also render judgment on the false teachers and those who follow them. Exhibit B, the fallen angels, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So Jude's second illustration alludes to the book of Enoch, which is one of those books that I spoke to you about, where it mentions that angels are kicked out of heaven because of their rebellion. Enoch... Enoch, not Jude, goes on to say that they came to earth and intermarried with women so as to corrupt the human race. Now this seems to refer to Genesis chapter 6 where it talks about, that we, we spoke about this in our series in the book of Genesis where the sons of God married the daughters of men because they found them pretty and then, yeah, now Jude makes no comment on the veracity of this intermarriage and I believe that that is impossible. 
Um, but I take the, God, the, the sons of God to mean those who were following God, not necessarily the, the demonic. But anyway, it's a big argument and scholars have been arguing about this for, for years. Now Jude makes no comment on the veracity of the intermarriage, but he does remind his readers that those angels who did follow Satan, because it wasn't just the devil, but his angels who then became demons, who fell from their place in heaven, and they have since been bound in chains, awaiting the day of judgment. Now, whatever you make of it, and you need to read more on it, but it is quite sobering to think that even angels who served in the very presence of God were not above, were not beyond rebelling against the Almighty. How much more urgent for us then fallen mortals to be alert, to be on our guard against the possibility of falling under the corrupting influence of the evil one. That is the warning. Exhibit C, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So verse 6, he talks about judgment on the great day. Verse 7, he talks about the punishment of eternal fire. It's pretty hard hitting, right? So Sodom and Gomorrah, we read about them in Genesis chapter 19. They were cities that were well known as places of open and rampant immorality, like San Francisco, Sydney, Bangkok, I know, Amsterdam, the list goes on, doesn't it? The sexual perversion and violence of these notorious cities it wasn't an accident. It didn't just happen. It was the result of violating the creative design of God and then continually descending, continually trying, experimenting, doing one thing after another after another until it turned into, into chaos. We can, say, we can say that they were already destroyed even before God came and confirmed their fate. with fire and sulphur. Now these cities serve an example, as an example to us of what God will do to those who use the, the grace of God as an excuse for immorality. Yes, it starts behind closed doors in the privacy of one's own place, but then it slowly feeds into the rest of society. And then it reaches Parliament and the courts and society at large. 
common attempt to shut down Christian Christians who stand against this. There's a common attempt to shut down Christians today who speak against abortion, against homosexuality, adultery, etc., etc., is to quote. What they do is they quote Jesus' words. You put, a, you put something up on Facebook and this is what you're going to hear. Do not judge or you too will be judged. That's Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7. They will quote those verses because they heard it somewhere else, not because they're necessarily interested, but they throw it at us, right? And suddenly we say, oh, how do you respond to that? But they will quote it out of context. Read the context. He did not say, you read the, the context there of that declaration and, then, and read the, the wider context of the Sermon on the Mount and then the wider context of Scripture Something that he did not say is do not judge. He didn't say don't judge between truth and error. He spoke of these, of these things that there is one thing that we cannot judge. What is that? Only God can judge the motives. And this is where I need to explain a little bit. Let me give you an example. When you see a man overdose on drugs, you can see the result of sin, but you don't see the motive. You can say an action is wrong, but you cannot discern or judge in your mind what has driven that person to do that certain thing, that's commit that certain sin or crime or whatever it is. And that's... I think it's a helpful, it's a, it's a big argument. It's a big, it deserves a sermon on its own. But just to, just to quickly say, uh, I want to go to Baptist preacher F.B. Meyer, who, F.B. Meyer ministered in, in England in the late 1800s and in America uh, as well. And he was one of these guys who campaigned against immorality. He was full on. But even though he, he, this was the heart of, it, of everything and the transformation you know, against brothels and all of that, um, one, this is what he said. He said, when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we do not know. First, first we do not know how hard he or she tried not to sin. Second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her in order to commit that sin. And thirdly, we also do not know what we would have done in similar circumstances. And that sort of helps us understand a little bit more uh, from the actions, separating the actions and the motives behind it. The Lord does say to us in Matthew 7:24, "Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. It means not our own judgment about what we feel and think, but according to God's righteous judgment. That's Christians, we are to make righteous judgment based upon His word in order to expose sin on the one hand 
but also to help lift the fallen. And this is something that Christians have been able to do and, and, and have been doing for a couple of thousand years. Why do, we think, why do you think we have prison ministry? We know that these men and women are serving time, but there are wonderful ministry and wonderful stories of those who, through the gospel, have been wonderfully saved and restored. We don't cancel people because of their past. We preach grace, redemption, forgiveness. So this whole cancel rubbish about the culture that you hear about, it's rubbish. Nobody is beyond God's redemption. And this is where I think in this culture that we live in now, it's becoming very, from a secular perspective, it's becoming very dogmatic. Preaching their own form of saying, you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't say that. All you Christians do that. Well, I'm sorry. What do you think we've been doing for the last 2,000 years? All the benefits of the freedoms and the liberties and the sanctity of life, that didn't come by accident. It's based on holy book. Right there. Exhibit D. Ignorance, slander, verses 8 to 10. In the very same way, in the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. There's ignorance for you. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Now, what, what these teachers were doing is through dreams they were claiming special revelation from God. Have you heard that one before? The Lord told me that it's okay. That the Lord's going to forgive you. It's fine. It's fine. Whatever you, whatever you do, it's okay. Just continue to do it. As long as you're genuine about it, you know. Really? The strength of their dreams. These ungodly people pollute their own bodies. And, then, and so somehow excuse their sexual immorality. Not only was it not permissible for them but others as well, that they were teaching. Because apostasy and lawlessness clearly feed upon each other. A lack of respect for biblical truth creates lawlessness. Lawlessness leads to anarchy. Anarchy is when you reach a stage of looting and raping and destroying and burning property. That's, that's the stage you reach. That's the stage after lawlessness. It is not uncommon for people who wander from the faith 
to refuse to submit to any authority. The recent events in the U.S. are an example of our society who once, a society who once relied on the truth of the Scriptures can so quickly, before your eyes, descend into lawlessness. No respect for God's law leads to no respect for authority, no respect for property, no respect for human life. They become a law unto themselves. One example, of course, is, is the ridiculous defund the police movement. How stupid is that? The very people who are put there by God, Romans 13, you're going to say, no, we've got a better way. You reject the authority of the Bible and then you reject the very authority that God put in their place to protect you, to protect the innocent, to keep some type of standard. Given the fact that the Jude has just re- mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, many commentators see here a, a reference to homosexuality. Whether it is or, or not, we, we cannot be certain. What we do know is that these men were behaving like animals, acting on instinct. What does instinct mean? You heard the expression, if it feels good, do it. That's instinct. And Paul condemns this in Romans 1.32. They, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You promote it. You're out there shouting from the rooftop, it's okay, it's fine. No, it's not. Now Jude now refers to something written in the Assumption of Moses. This is one of the other ones that I spoke about. When Moses died, Michael the archangel, Michael is the chief angel, that's what archangel means. It was his job, according to the Assumption of Moses, to bury Moses' body. But then Satan opposed Michael, claiming that Moses' corpse was his. Now, whenever the archangel Michael is mentioned in the Bible, again, big topic, angels, archangel, that's another topic for another time. Whenever the archangel Michael is mentioned in scriptures, it is always in the times of spiritual conflict. He's one of the big ones. Now, Michael made no personal judgment on Satan, but reminded him that the Lord had already rebuked him. This is a reference to Zechariah chapter 3. Now, why why make a deal out of this? It is likely Satan wanted the Israelites who honoured Moses most times throughout his life, but now he was dead. They, they They wanted to have his body so they could worship him in death. That's why there is that statement in the Old Testament that that God buried him, that they don't know where his body was. There, I was there in 
Mount Nebo on the other side of the Jordan. Because you see, Satan always tries to divert worship to God to worshipping other things or even God's servants. They could have been good people, they could have been holy people, but even the angels refuse any worship to them. I'm only an angel, the angels would say when they appear, right? Don't worship me, worship God. Now, what, what Satan did is for, for many years he succeeded in getting the people, the, the Israelites, to worship the bronze snake. Remember the bronze snake? The Old Testament, the episode? Until Hezekiah. Years later, King Hezekiah intervened. And, and this is what 2 Kings 18.4 says. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. It, it was still there, right? It was still there. For up to that time, the Israelites had been what? They had been burning incense to it. And this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt a little bit. What do you think the Catholic Church does? What do you think the Coptic Church does? What do you think the Orthodox Church does? Burning candles to the saints. The icons. It's all deflecting. It's all... Well, just look at the Ten Commandments. Exactly what Satan tries to do. Satan's go- and, and this is the thing: that Satan's goal is, is not is not to get people to worship him. He doesn't. Satan does not want worship. So if you're a Satan worshiper, you're, you're in the wrong business. He doesn't want that. What he wants to do is to get people to worship anything or anyone but the true God. Push, deflect, away. And when people wander from the truth, what happens is they end up worshipping, actually just worshipping themselves, their own proclivities, their own instincts. Exhibit E, Cain, Balaam and Korah. How are we going for time here? This is verse 11. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error and they have being destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Again, Jude cites three more Old Testament accounts of those who rebelled against God and his will. Firstly, we, we know the episode of Cain who killed his brother Abel when God accepted Abel's offering. He was jealous because God accepted Abel's offering, but not his. So he just killed his brother. Secondly, Balaam. Interesting story. We can call Balaam the mercenary prophet. He advertised on Gumtree. Right? The mercenary prophet who a pagan king hired to curse the children of Israel. And as he was uh, riding along on his donkey, right, uh, the donkey suddenly stopped. Right? Because what? An angel of the Lord blocked the way. Think about it. Think about it. 
the donkey could see it, Balaam couldn't. Even an animal can see what God is trying to do and humans can't. Even the servant of God, supposedly the servant of God, couldn't see it. I wonder who was the ass, right? (laughs) I just had to say it, throw that in. And the donkey spoke. Well, that's surprising. That's not something, you know. Mr. Red, right there, talking, voice of an angel, rebuking the madness of the prophet of God. Read the story, Numbers 22. So Balaam functions as a, as a bad example of those subsequent prophets and teachers and pastors who can't even match the wisdom of a donkey when it comes to speaking God's truth. And Jude also mentions Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16. Uh, Korah and his group were the ones who said to Moses and Aaron, rebelling against authority, right? Authority established by God. And they rebelled and they basically said to them, look, who do you think you are making yourselves leaders of Israel? Who put you there? But the ground opened up, swallowed them all. Korah and his followers. Point is, bad guys are going to get it. Exhibit F, their ungodly character, verses 12 to 13. Now these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Clouds without rain, which is the title for our miniseries. Blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. Twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. What is the love feast? The love feast is the Lord's Supper, something that is very special that the Lord has left us to remember him by. Sadly, over 2,000 years, it has been prone to abuse. The the Reformation started a whole discussion of what actually happens at the Lord's Supper, for example. But these men, even before that, they they made a shambles of the Supper of Love Feast by mocking the things of God. And in these verses we have five word pictures taken from nature to describe these false teachers, earth, air, trees, seas and the heavens. So these teachers, these false teachers, pretended to have life-giving answers, but they are no more than clouds that promise rain, refreshing rain, but delivered nothing. Just blown away. Fruit trees. In August, the fruit tree is supposed to bring some fruit, but the harvest doesn't come. It doesn't produce any fruit. Any fruit is spiritually dead. 
As a result of this, Jesus said in Matthew 15:13, "Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted." Twice dead. It's already not producing, but dead. We're just going to uproot it. Twice dead. And finally, Jude compared these false teachers to shooting stars. They are beautiful, they, are, they impact the heavens, you see them, the shooting stars, they're bright, but just as quick as they appear, they burn up and disappear. Haven't we seen a lot of shooting stars? And lastly, exhibit G, the prophecy of Enoch, verses 14 to 16. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own Advantage. Now Enoch is, is, is a curious case. You read about him in Genesis. He walked with the Lord and what happened? One day the Lord just took him. You know how we were talking about funerals, plan your own funeral? He didn't have time to plan. The Lord just took him. He didn't need one. Promoted straight to heaven, raptured. Isn't that a wonderful way to go, Right? Somebody said about Enoch, he walked with the Lord on earth and he just kept walking until the Lord took him home, until he got home. That's a great, isn't it? His son was Methuselah, who was the living, the longest living human being. Anybody know how many years? Yeah. 965 years, I think. Yep. Now, what does Methuselah, the name, actually mean? The, the, the name can be translated as this. Methuselah actually means it's a long name. It's not as long as Mozachuk. But when this, when this child dies, it shall come. When this child dies, it shall come. That's the translation. This meant that the judgment of God in the form of a worldwide flood, Noah's flood, was already scheduled, planned in God's plan, economy. Now, do you see the grace of God here in the fact that Methuselah, the longest living human being ever, went on to live 965 years? What does that tell you? That on the moment he was born, he was given a name, when this child dies, it shall come. What was God doing? He was giving the people a chance to repent. 965 years. Wow, what patience. What patience. God pronounced judgment and yet he delayed it. Giving people all the chances that he could. And guess what, folks? God has already pronounced judgment on this world as well. We don't know when, we don't know the time, but he has. 
And he has appointed a judge. So Jesus is either going to be your, your redeemer or your judge. God has already pronounced judgment on this world and no one can accuse God of being ungracious and not giving people enough warnings. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, and by the way, 2 Peter is very, very similar to, to Jude. And Peter tells us, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the reason for the delay. Yes, God is patient, but one day we know that his patience will wear out. And yes, and no, we don't want to be we don't want to be grumblers like these characters finding faults in others. We never do that. Boasting how good we are. Making sure that we rub the right people the right way so that we can take advantage of them. Hurts, doesn't it? That's exactly what these people were. What were they? Grumblers, fault finders, boast on themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. You know, just rub him the right way and he, he, will, he will do you favours, mate. Hurts. And some of us are guilty of these things for which we need to repent. It's also great to know that God's mercy continues. His patience continues. His grace continues. The doors of the ark are still open. He loves his church and he gave himself for her as the Redeemer. If we stand upon the rock of our salvation, we will not fall. That is his promise. And this same Jesus will not only save us from the wrath to come, he will also protect his own from those false teachers who seek to deceive and exploit us. And on this authority, we are to be his witnesses. We are to contend for the, for the faith until the day he calls us home or the day that he returns. Let us sing a song.